If you're a founder, you know that fundraising is a big part of the job. What you might not know is that Carta is there to help. Carta's new fundraising suite provides startups of all stages the best tools and support to easily issue safes, accurately forecast solution, and quickly close funding rounds. Save time, money, and make your next round your best yet. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Welcome to Inc.'s The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. I'm Alexa, the founder of LearnVest, author of New York Times bestselling book, Financially Fearless, and second book, Financially Forward. I'm also the founder and managing partner of Inspired Capital, a venture firm focused on the entrepreneurs of the future. Each week, we sit down with the top founder to share their story of guts, inspiration, and drive. Hi, everybody. I'm your host, Alexa Von Tobel, and this week, I'm excited for you to meet Pat Brown, founder and chief visionary officer of Impossible Foods, a company at the very forefront of making nutritious, delicious meat and dairy products from plants to satisfy meat lovers and address the environmental impact of animal farming. Pat came up with the idea for Impossible Foods while on sabbatical from his position as a professor in biochemistry at Stanford University School of Medicine. In 2011, Pat chose to devote himself full-time to Impossible Foods. Today, Impossible Foods is available in thousands of grocery stores around the country and tens of thousands of restaurants. Pat holds a BA, MD, and PhD in biochemistry from the University of Chicago. While at Stanford, he developed a new technology that made it possible to monitor the activity of all genes in a genome. He pioneered the use of gene expression patterns to classify cancers and improve prediction of their clinical course, and is a recipient of the American Cancer Society Medical of Honor. In addition to all of that, he's the co-founder of Lyrical Foods, which makes the Kite Hill brand of artisanal nut milk-based cheeses and yogurts. Wow. And with that, let's welcome Pat. Hi, Pat. So I want to start with just the most simple question. What is Impossible Foods in your mind? Well, the most important thing... uh that you need to know about Impossible Foods is our mission. Uh, it's to completely replace the use of animals and food technology by 2035. That's been sort of the defining uh, fact about Impossible Foods since day one. And we're doing it because it's the only realistic way to put the brakes on climate change and reverse the precipitous collapse of global biodiversity, which is probably an even bigger threat than climate change. And we're a technology company. We're achieving our mission by basically developing a new and better way to produce the most delicious, nutritious, affordable, and sustainable meat, fish, and dairy food in the world. And we're market-based, which basically means we succeed by, um, you know, creating better products for consumers and letting them choose and letting the market work. So one of my favorite facts about um, you, Pat, was that you actually decided to pursue Impossible Foods while you were supposed to be on sabbatical. You were supposed to be taking, you know, a moment for yourself, letting your mind have free time. What was the aha moment? I started with identifying the problem I wanted to solve, which is the two biggest environmental threats the world faces, climate change and, and the collapse of biodiversity, which is, again, probably a bigger problem. It was readily apparent, I didn't discover this fact, that the biggest factor in both of those was the use of animals of food technology, agriculture and, and uh, fishing industry. But I think the critical insight was realizing that you don't solve this problem by educating people, by, by legislation, by coercion or anything like that, that it, you solve the problem by basically realizing this is an incredibly archaic, inefficient technology that the world is using to produce these foods. And in the 21st century, we know enough about 
you know, how to understand uh, biochemistry and biological materials and so forth, that we ought to be able to understand those foods and figure out a, a much better way to make them. Pat, will you just educate everybody that's listening? You said the collapse of biodiversity. Can you just give us a quick one minute on what that is, what that means? What's known about wild animal populations in the world? And there have been some ongoing studies for for decades now, uh, one that's been funded by the World Wildlife Fund and um, uh, with many, many academic institutions that have been taking a census of the total populations of thousands of animal species that were selected decades ago to be representative of the entire diversity of wildlife. What they've been reporting year after year after year, and most recently, I think about uh, two years ago, that the average population of all those species that they've been tracking today is less than a third what it was 50 years ago, okay? Wow. There's less than a third as many living wild mammals, wild birds, wild reptiles, wild amphibians, wild fish in the ocean and fresh water. And, and more recently, there have been a number of papers uh, published that have uh, shown that flying insect populations are crashing. Some of the reports say they're 25% of what they were just a couple of decades ago, okay? So those, those you know, animals are critical parts of maintaining the ecosystems that keep this planet alive. It's kind of like a lagging indicator of the problem in a way. So, you know, you're talking about basically if the insects that and animals that pollinate and disperse the seeds and turn over dead biomass and so forth and basically keep those ecosystems thriving are gone, the next thing that happen is the trees that are going to live, you know, they have a finite lifespan, but they it's longer than the wild animals. They're going to die. You know, they're going to die and nothing will replace them. So it's something that nobody seems to pay much attention to. And it's really crazy. It's so predictable. 50 years, less than a third of the animals left. It's, you know, it's a, it's a disaster. Think of it as nature collapsing. For people out there, can you just describe what Impossible does to make it mimic meat? Can you just give us a quick sense around the product? The way we approached the problem was we um, hired some of the best scientists in the world to study meat as if it were a disease, you could say, as if, you know, a biomedical scientist would would try to understand basic biological mechanisms. But what we were trying to understand is what creates the sensory experience of eating meat that consumers love, okay? And it turned out it had really never been studied that way before. And so quite early on, we were able to discover a relatively simple answer to the question, why does meat taste unlike anything from the plant world? Uh, which and the answer was that anything that we call meat has much higher levels of a molecule called heme than um, anything in the plant world, basically. Even though every living thing on Earth has heme, it's essential for every living cell on Earth. But animals have very high levels of it because they're so much more metabolically active and they, they use it to manage oxygen. And it turns out that heme is the catalyst that catalyzes that transformation that happens when you cook meat from a very kind of mild sort of bloody taste to this intense meaty taste and with an explosion of aroma during the process, something that you notice never happens when you cook broccoli, okay? And that's because there's this special chemical catalyst that makes all these chemical reactions happen 
that transform the simple nutrients that are in meat, but they're also in plants, basically amino acids, vitamins, uh, simple sugars, fatty acids, and so forth, into hundreds of volatile compounds that you've learned to recognize as the aroma and, and flavor of meat. But then you also had to actually get it into market. So now let's go into getting it into market. And I think, you know, as I was preparing, one of the things you couldn't create vast volumes of it very quickly. You actually had to, you know, be able to, and at the same time, you wanted to create a movement and, you know, really get people excited about the product. So walk us through a little bit of your thinking. And as I mentioned, in five years, you've got it into some pretty important places. So how'd you do that? Yeah. So obviously the first order of business is we, you know, we were not going to try to launch a product until we felt that the only customer that we care about is a customer who is otherwise going to buy an animal product. We're, we're not creating products for vegetarians or vegans. That's just critical to understand. And that meant that uh, we weren't going to even try to launch a product until we felt that we had something that a hardcore meat lover would value as meat. And so along the way, we were working with great chefs. We have one who's been working with us for now probably about seven years, Tracy Desjardins, who's a wonderful person and, and a great chef. And very widely respected around the world, who is sort of serving as an advisor and kind of a reality check for us. She's the no BS person. We would ask her all the time, okay, what's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? What's wrong with it? And when it got to the point where she was actually kind of giving it a thumbs up, we also took it to various other chefs, one of which was Dave Chang, who was our first launch partner. And he's a hardcore meat guy. I don't know um, if if you know him, but you definitely go to... yeah. Uh, he actually once banned vegetarian items from his menu just on principle. He was picketed by PETA. You know, he's that kind of guy. And the point is, given the mission of the company, we're not interested in selling veggie burgers to vegetarians. So that's the kind of hardcore assessment that we want. And when someone like him says he wants to put this on the menu, his menu is highly curated, okay? His livelihood and and his reputation depends on basically serving delicious meat to consumers who who are coming to his restaurant for that. And so getting it on his menu, because it's such a highly curated experience, basically means that it's not just going to sit there on the shelf waiting for someone to pick it up because it's got an endorsement behind it. And basically, we, we use that strategy because, A, we could, because we actually had products that hardcore meat chefs wanted to put on their menus and put their reputations behind. But secondly, because as you were saying, we were producing out of a tiny, basically like garage. I mean, it was a GMP food production facility, but it was the size of a garage in New Jersey. And we could only produce enough for a handful of restaurants. And the amount of money we would earn from those small scales was was irrelevant. It was was all about uh, the potential for generating awareness. And we wanted to maximize awareness with every pound of product sold. And the best way to do it was to put it in the hands of some of the best chefs in the world who are gonna create something delicious out of it, put it on their menu with, with all the value of that endorsement. What happened next? Because you know today, everybody has now seen it quite literally everywhere from Burger King to Starbucks to Walmart. How'd that transition happen? How did those contracts become real? We started hiring a few people who actually had experience in selling to food service and so forth. 
And the reception was very positive, I think, because we did have some awareness in the restaurant world from our initial launch, which made that people would meant that people would meet with our our salespeople and so forth. But there is a very challenging aspect to it because you know you want to scale as much as possible, as fast as possible. But you know, when you're in hyper growth, the challenge of balancing demand and supply is crazy hard, okay? For example, when um, you know our first really big customer, which is Burger King, signed on, effectively the demand doubled, okay, in a microsecond. We were producing out of a, a factory that up until then had one shift and was at a certain scale, and suddenly we had to staff up really, really fast. How do we do this? So. I sent an email to everybody at the company, basically, and said, we need volunteers, and here's what we need you to do. <laughs> Drive across the Bay to Oakland, walk into a refrigerator, which is our production facility. It's a temperature of a refrigerator. Work there doing uh, work that you never set out to do, which might involve stacking burgers or putting them in a box or um, something like that. 12-hour shifts through the night, and overnight, 100 people volunteered for that job, okay? Wow. Pretty much everybody on the R&D team said, sign me up. Because we have people who are here for the mission. And basically, their definition of their job is whatever it takes to succeed. What do you want to accomplish over the next few years at Impossible Foods? What's next for the company? What are the things that are getting you out of bed every day with such urgency to make sure that you can do your part on helping accomplish that by 2035? Number one, sine qua non, um, we have to continue to make better and better products that compete against, you know, the critical economic pillars of the animal-based food industry, okay? Uh, we don't need to make beef liver, you know, because um, no one's going to raise a cow just to harvest the liver. We have to make, but we have to make products that compete against sort of the big categories without which that industry wouldn't exist. And we're focused very hard on those and uh, making a ton of progress on them. Things like whole cuts, you know, like like steak and pork tenderloin or whatever, chicken breast, uh, fish fillets. Secondly, I'd say equally important, if not more so, you know, among people who have ever tried our products, the level of satisfaction repeat is very high, okay? But our best estimate is that um, on the order of 5% of the US population has ever tried our products. And less than 10% of the population, definitely in the single digits, is even aware that there is such a thing as impossible foods or that our products exist. A meat-eating consumer basically confronts a product whose value proposition they don't fully understand, okay? Certainly, the overwhelming majority of the U.S. public and the public in the world has little or no idea that um, the use of animals to produce food is actually the most destructive technology humans have ever invented. And that if we don't replace that technology, your kids and grandkids are going to be uh, in pretty dire situation. They don't know that. So we get no benefit from that. Most consumers are not that sophisticated about health and nutrition and so forth and basically listen to whatever pundit they find on the internet. And so we have to basically, in order to persuade consumers that there is a compelling value proposition to impossible products, 
there's a big education challenge. So that's something I'm also trying to figure out how to work on by, by finding allies who are, let's just say, have a bigger audience than I ever will to uh, help carry the message and so forth. And then the third thing that I'm putting quite a lot of effort into is what to do with the opportunity. So our sales last year, we can calculate, basically reduce the land area required to produce beef by about 500 square miles. So that's about the area of the San Francisco Peninsula. Wow. Okay, but we don't know what happened to that land. In other words, we know we had 100,000 fewer cows slaughtered. We had correspondingly less land required to maintain, you know, feed them, all that kind of stuff. But it's a question mark what happened. So we want to be much more active in um, conveying to current uh, farmers and ranchers and so forth that there's an incredible economic opportunity for them, okay? And that is that right now there is more demand than supply for carbon offsets, for legitimate carbon offsets. Carbon markets are a joke, but for companies that are working with integrity to find legitimate carbon offsets, of which there are some, there are not enough out there. Okay. Animal agriculture is by far the most land intensive industry on earth. It's about uh, almost 85% of the entire land footprint of humanity is animal agriculture. Every city on earth fits on less than 1% of its land area, just to put it in perspective. Wow. Yeah. City dwellers think the problem is, oh, cities are sprawling and so forth, but that's because they live in cities and that's all they see. But if you look at satellite images and there are people who have have actually quantitated land use using satellite imaging, it's less than 1%. So anyway, um, versus animal agriculture is the whole opportunity when it comes to land. Anyway, people in that industry are not doing very well. For example, the most land intensive is beef production, okay? The median income of a, of a beef farmer or rancher in the U.S. is a negative number, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And, in, and the total amount of money that the entire industry from the first person taking care of a calf to the slaughterhouse makes annually is something like in the mid $60 billion range, which is not, not chump change, but uh, a rounding error in the, in, in, in the GDP. And very little of that money goes to the farmers, okay? The, the, the slaughter cartel makes most of the profits. Okay, but if those farmers were to convert their land into, think of it as carbon ranches, okay, um, basically, uh, instead of doing the hard work they're doing to, to you know, make hay and manage the cows and stuff like that, to focus on restoring healthy ecosystems, there's actually people who are willing to pay for that, okay? There's quite a big market. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Alexa here. Not only do I get the opportunity to speak with all types of founders on, for starters, but I'm a repeat founder myself. We all know how vital fundraising is to a startup. Carta knows this too. That's why they had founders in mind when they created their fundraising suite, providing tools and support to take the friction out of fundraising. They save founders time and money, allowing you to focus on your goals, not the admin work needed to close around. From simply issuing safes to quickly receiving funds, Carta Fundraising Suite helps their cap table customers raise a better fundraising round. To learn more or to get started, go to carta.com forward slash fundraise. That's carta.com forward slash fundraise. Pat, I know we don't have a ton of time, so I want to transition to you. What the heck did your parents do to make you so special? <laughs> what did they do? I want to, I'm really asking that. Go back to your childhood. Was there something that they did that 
really stood out as something that you you hung on to through your life? My parents were incredible, awesome people. By everything they did and said and by the choices they made and so forth, communicating that what matters in life is making the world better, okay? It's not making a ton of money. It's not accolades or fame or anything like that. It's just doing what you can to help people make the world better. And this was just like not even something that they would say. It was embodied in everything that they, you know, how they talked about the world, how they talked about their own work and so forth. And so that just was the norm that I grew up with. And that's the perfect way to be happy. You know, I get such joy from exactly trying to pursue that mission and philosophy. It's all the other stuff that's that makes me crazy. You've accomplished so much in your life already, and I have no doubt that you will do much more. Is there anything that you hold as sacred? Like, is there something just to you and your mentality, how you approach life, that I always find the best founders, the best entrepreneurs, there's something that's really sacred to them. What is it for you? One thing I won't compromise, it's always been true uh, of my approach to my job, is uh, my family. You know, my family always comes first. You know, when I was a professor, when I was interviewing for jobs, I, I would just tell people right up front, you know, I'm not going to be one of these people who is working 16-hour days at in the lab and and working on the weekends. Dinner time with my family is, I'm always going to try to be home for dinner. I'm going to, my weekends are for my family and stuff like that. And hey, if you can't deal with that, um, then don't hire me. Is there any habit that you have that keeps you sane, right? You're accomplishing massive big things. Is there any part of your routine that you've just grown really accustomed to that helps you create within a week stability? I like to run. I don't listen to music. I don't listen to podcasts. Sorry. <laughs> no, <I'm joking. laughs> <laughs> I like to run on trails. I don't really like crossing streets. But fortunately, where I live around here, there's lots and lots of uh, trails to run on. Yeah. And if I don't get my run in, Sue, my wife, uh, will know. And sometimes she'll just chase me out of the house so that I'm not a crazy man. <laughs> Probably the other thing is drinking massive amounts of coffee. So those are the things that keep me sane. That's helpful, Pat. Okay, Pat, the, the last part of this interview is I'm going to just ask you a question and you literally just tell me the first thing that comes to your mind. What gets you out of bed every morning? There's always something to do. I, like I never get out of bed and I think, oh, what am I going to do today? You know? That was perfect. Um, what's a favorite book that you come back to over and over again? can be any category of book, but a book that you truly love. I read uh, The New Yorker. I've been subscribing it to for a million years in print form. You know, I, it comes on Wednesday. I'm always looking forward to when it arrives, and I pretty much read it from cover to cover. What is a question you like to ask when you're interviewing somebody to decide whether or not they should join Impossible Foods? What, what's a question that gets to the heart of who somebody is in your mind? I don't have a very stereotyped interview method. Sometimes I'll ask people like things along the lines of, you know, why come here? And, you know, people often say, oh, well, I wanted to work at a mission-driven company. And I feel like, well, that's glib. Okay. So I've just probed them about, okay, do you really understand anything about our mission and why it matters? And if they haven't done that homework, I feel like I'm not going to waste my time. Okay. Because we're not just like a generic mission-driven company. We have a very specific mission. 
And the people who come here, and the reason I think that we have such a such an awesome team, is they're people who that's what it's all about for them. Okay, um, is that's what gets them up out of bed in the morning. That's what keeps them motivated, no matter what. Is they understand and they're deeply committed to the company's mission, not just a generic oh, it's a mission-driven company. Like our mission is to create more comfy shoes, you know, or something like that. Yeah, so that's really important. I love it. I mean, you're trying to save the planet, quite literally. So you need pretty committed people. Last two questions here. I want to know the biggest pinch me moment to date that's happened for you at Impossible Foods, where you actually came home and told your wife, Sue, oh my gosh, I can't believe this happened. What happened? What was it? There's so many like that, where I just get this buzz of energy. Um, we we just had a, our, uh, what we call in our R&D team, something we've been doing. I, currently, it's about twice a year. We have uh, the entire R&D team gets a, a, a week to work on projects that they choose. That's not the one that that they're currently working on. Uh, it's called Creativity Week. And then we have, uh, at the end of it, we have a uh, kind of like a little science fair where people just show off show up what they learn. And one of the projects that uh, there was tremendous excitement about, and, and this was really heartwarming to me, to be honest, actually, is was come up with shelf-stable products that are affordable in the poorest parts of the world, okay, that are delicious and could provide basically a day's worth of protein, iron, and micronutrients, okay? And the reason is because um, protein malnutrition and iron deficiency are the two most prevalent forms of malnutrition in the world, and they have a huge health and economic impact on the poorest parts of the world. So it's almost a billion people who don't get enough protein in their diet, and the kids are stunted, and their development is delayed, and their health is compromised, and so forth. And there's almost 2 billion people who are iron deficient, and they're mostly uh, women of childbearing age and young children. And again, their health is compromised, and it's a serious problem. So the idea is, can we make products that are affordable to people who have like a negligible income, okay, that are delicious and are, are you know, appropriate to what people like and a great source of uh, protein and iron? And there were like, I think there must have been like 10 self-organized groups that dove in and the products they created were all over the map and they were insanely good. And that was inspiring because because actually, you know, what I thought was, well, yeah, you can cram a lot of nutrients into something that's not too expensive, but it's going to taste awful. <laughs> no, no, there's they were so good. It was incredible. That's just a recent one, but that was something that I felt was quite inspiring. Like I couldn't get, my wife couldn't get to it. She works at the company, but she couldn't get there in time. And she's actually involved in the project because she's our head of health and nutrition. But I couldn't wait to get home and tell her how good they were. Everybody out there, if you haven't already purchased Impossible Foods, literally head to impossiblefoods.com, buy the products, buy them everywhere that they are offered. And thank you so much for joining us. You can find us next week on Inc. The Founders Project with Alexa Von Tobel. And Pat, we're so grateful. Thank you. Thank you, Alexa. It's been a pleasure talking to you.